the UN partners with Bill Gates and the Kamala Biden administration to push for a global knife and blunt object buyback program after a young woman in Delhi, India, is stabbed 25 times in broad daylight on a street in Delhi, and no one stops to help her. Oh, oh, if only you or I had been there. If only you and I had stopped the sexism and the tyrannical patriarchy that was so evident in this truly horrific, but so evident in this event. If only the arbiters of justice and all that is good and right, that is you and me, had been there, surely, surely it would have been different. Only, only if we were there back during World War II, we would have stormed the gates of Auschwitz. If only we were there back during the time of the Colosseum in Rome, where they had poor slaves fighting off lions and bears in an act of sport. Only, if only we were there, we would have surely stood up and did the right thing. Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Okay, truth be told, the UN, Bill Gates, and the Kamala Biden president, Joe Biden, did not actually issue a global knife and blunt object buyback, but maybe it's not a bad idea after all. In 2018, according to the FBI in the United States, there were approximately 1,515 deaths by knife or cutting instruments. 443 people were killed with hammers, clubs, or other blunt objects. 672 people were killed from fists, feats, and personal weapons. Maybe we should have a, a fist buyback program compared to the 297 that were killed by rifles. So, you know, it looks like uh, knives and blunt objects are a true danger to society. It makes sense. I mean, if you're in a crime of passion, um, anger, you can just pick up a rock on the side of the road and there it is. So maybe we should have a rock buyback program. That'd actually be, <laughs> that'd actually be not a bad idea. But in, in all seriousness, a, a horrible, horrible event happened on April 11th in Delhi, India. The report reads, in a horrific incident reported from the national capital, India, Delhi, India, a woman was stabbed to death by her husband at a market in broad daylight by which in which people watched them and recorded the incident but refused to step forward to save her. Even after she died, the husband stabbed her as many as 25 times in a fit of rage. The incident took place in public view in Northwest Delhi on Saturday afternoon while the accused told the police he recently got married. He wasn't happy at the job that she was working. He wanted her to stay home. The police have identified the victim as a 26-year-old, Neely Mehta, who worked in a hospital in Delhi. Her husband, Harish, is an employee at the Marriage Bureau. However, she decided against his threats and continued to work rather than becoming a housewife. She left him to stay with her parents because of the threats, which at that point that pushed him over the edge where he then suspected she was having an extramarital affair. And then he decided to end her his pain. And at 2 p.m. on Saturday, when she was coming home from work, he cornered her and stabbed her. I, I watched the video 
it was, uh, I forced myself to watch the video and you could see it, but there's a couple different times where people try to approach him to stop him. And then he turned and, and began to threaten them with a knife. So the, a lot of the commentary, here's actually a piece of commentary that I, I've read is saying that, oh, you know, this is just evidence of the patriarchy. This is evidence that society by and large looked upon this and said, well, this is a private matter. I'm not going to get myself involved with someone who's being stabbed in broad daylight as tr as trucks and, and mopeds are driving by. I'm not going to stop. What's it to me? I don't think that's the case. And we'll get into why actually that is not the case, in my opinion, from my analysis, um, due to some psychology, due to some uh, historical studies. But here's, here's one uh, commentary. In fact, the fact that a woman is not even allowed to decide her career and when she does, she has a life, her life threatened by her own husband is nothing but the horror of anyone's life, which is, that's true. I mean, this man is clearly filled with rage and jealousy. He thought that she was having an affair, which is why he didn't want her to work. So it was more of this issue of jealousy from my vantage point than the fact that she was actually working a job, but he was distrusting and very jealous. And uh, that drove him to do this horrible, horrible, horrible act. The, the commentary goes on. Imagine what the woman went through in her last moments, that she was literally being killed by a person on the streets in a market filled with hundreds of people, but no one came forward and she laid in a pool because it was an internal matter as she is a woman. Now, this is where, you know, in the intro, I said, oh, it's it's evidence of the tyrannical patriarchy. And it's just accepted that she can go around killing people in broad daylight on the streets and people don't care. Well, that's not true. And it's also not true that this is something that's only uh, relegated to a male and female issue where it's only women who are allowed to be killed in any society across the world. That's also uh, very much not true, as we'll see. And so, of course, especially right now with t today's, the climate that we're in, people like to make things about greater societal issues, whether it's a, a woman's right to work, which I fully agree with. Women should be allowed to work and they shouldn't be killed for doing so. I, I actually, I don't know anyone who disagrees with me and I live here in the Middle East. And uh, of course, people would want to make it about, well, this is, you know, systemic sexism and uh, clearly the tyrannical patriarchy, the fact that society would accept this, but we will see that that is also not the case. And of course, people will say, well, this is because it's Indian culture and we will soon see that that is not the case either. Well, the end of the story is that this man gets arrested by the police. He didn't even run. And he, without any remorse, said he or that she deserved it. So not a good guy. F clearly um, deep psychological issues. Maybe not. But clearly um, just, a, just a horrible, horrible incident. Um, but... There have been other incidences like this, not just ones in broad daylight, but in people getting killed over the job that they have. On October 5th, 2016, a man was told told his wife that it was not halal for her to work with other men as a carer, as a hospital CNA. 
and has been jailed for life after murdering her. Manchester Crown Court heard Emra Khan, 38, stabbed Nasrin Khan, also 38, at their home on April 18th, while five, five children were in the house. Khan complained that they had no physical intimacy and did not like her job as a care assistant because it involved one-on-one contact with other men, even though she was not bathing them, the court heard. He, I believe, served is serving life in prison. Again, It the, the crux of the matter here, of course, there are some cultural overlays in this one, but it does really seem like it's a matter of jealousy that's driving and drove at least this man in 2016 and also the man just this last week to kill his wife. It's jealousy. It's the wickedness of the heart of men and women. Here's March 15th, 2021. Again, in the UK, goodness, what's happening in the UK? Wife stabbed husband 22 times over suspected affair. She's jailed. This is actually quite an incredible story. A woman or a husband whose wife stabbed him 22 times over suspicion he was having an affair has told the court he survived being stabbed 22 times and he told the court he still loves her and has forgiven her. That's, uh, that's pretty wild. Prosecutor David Bradshaw said Mr. Singleton had woken in the middle of the night to go to the toilet when he saw his wife standing beside him with a knife in each hand. He said she stabbed her husband repeatedly in the chest and back. As he tried to get away, Mr. Singleton had slipped on his own blood and fell to the floor. The court heard that when their son, named Fox, woke and saw what happened, this is, this is the most astonishing part of the whole story. When the son heard what happened, Mr. Singleton asked him to hide the knives and tell the police that he did not know what happened. So here's this husband who has been stabbed by his wife 22 times, laying in a pool of his blood, somehow surviving. He tells his son, hey, hide the knives. Don't, don't say that mom did this. I mean, that is, um, that is next level uh, kind of commitment. So she's serving a, a long, lengthy sentence. Again, if you notice, jealousy. Jealousy in someone's heart drove them to this act. And you know whether or not Mr. Singleton was having an extramarital affair, uh, the article did not say. I do not know. But even if you are, I do not think that resorting to uh, murder is a good idea. Here's another article about Sally Jenny, who met her childhood sweetheart when she was 15, and he, Richard Callan, was 22. Well, many years later, when Sally was 56 and her husband, Richard, was 61, after 31 years of marriage, they started to have some rocky times. They were separated for a while, but they were planning on getting back together. Well, Sally was suspecting that even in the midst of getting back together, that Richard was having another or a affair. I don't know if he had a first one to start with, but my my from the reading of the article, it does sound like uh, there were a lot of issues in the relationship. The article reads, Sally served breakfast and as Richard ate, She's suspecting that he had an affair. She found some 
text messages on his phone. And so she serves him breakfast. As he ate, she takes a hammer and hits him more than 20 times. And in case he was still breathing, stuffed a tea towel into his mouth before wrapping him in some dirty old curtains. She wrote a note that said, I love you, Sally, and placed it on Richard's body. Then, here's the psycho part. Then, she washed the dishes and drove back home to the place that she shared with her son, David. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the story, the story here with, with what happened in Delhi and what happened in all of these other murder cases is clearly jealousy. Now, it seems that Richard had some infidelity issues, and uh, I do not condone that in any way, shape, or form. Um, but at the same breath, I do not condone murder. I don't know anyone that really does condone murder. Uh, maybe you do, and that would be awkward. So here's the thing. I don't. I this. I want to focus back on the story of what happened in India this past week with a lady being stabbed twenty five times in the middle of broad daylight with no one, no one stopping. Some people say, well, it's a it's a cultural thing, and I could see an argument for that. You know, within the world of karma, within the world of Hindu uh, Hinduism in India. Right, Hinduism believes in reincarnation. With that, they believe in this basic idea of karma. Now, you and I probably have used that word, um, but we probably use it more in the 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 nuance of what goes around comes around. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. This this is the idea of reaping and sowing. The things that you reap sow in your life, the seeds that you plant in your life, the way that you treat people, they will end up coming back to you, whether for good or bad. But now karma, it's kind of like that, but it's not really like that. Karma is a system that ties into the idea of reincarnation. And it's saying what you did in your past life, you pay for in this life. And if you're able to pay for what you did bad in your past life through suffering in this life, well, then you will be reincarnated into a higher state of of creation, whether that's a, a higher class or a higher animal, whether you get reincarnated into a cow, you know, what have you. So within this, within this worldview, within this ideology of karma, really real karma, not the way that you you and I probably use it, but real karma, it's when I see someone suffering, it means they are suffering because of something that they did in their past life and they're paying for their past sins. And so by letting them remain in their suffering, we're actually loving them. By letting them remain in their place of suffering, we're actually being kind to them because if we intervene and stop their suffering, if we intervene and help them, we're actually stopping the process of karma. We're actually hurting them because then they're not able to reincarnate to a higher state in in a, a, a future life to come. And that means... Here's the kicker, but I'm we get bad karma. You get bad karma for helping someone who's suffering. Because if you're helping someone who's suffering, that means you're taking away from their karmic cycle and they're going to end up worse in their next life, not better. And so that is the thing that you should not do. 
So I, that could that could be the circumstance here um, in Delhi, but I think there are deeper psychological issues that are at play, which we will see very shortly. But I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, a number of years ago, I think it was probably 2011 or 12, I was in Philadelphia standing across from UPenn just on a you know crisp Saturday night. It was a beautiful night out. The stars were shining. The city was bustling. And all of a sudden, I see a red car zoom up and cut off this bus and park this bus in. I see a, a gentleman, bald, probably six foot, step out of his car, pop his trunk. He walks around to the back of his trunk and he pulls out a three-foot fire axe. I mean, like, this is like the one that you see from a horror movie. He pulls out an axe. Now, I'm standing just across the street from him, you know, probably 20, 30 yards, 20, 30 meters away. And I'm watching him like, what is going on? He just cuts off this bus. He's getting out of the car. He's popping his truck. And now he has an axe in his hand. He walks around to the bus door and begins to threaten the bus driver with an axe. I mean, he's like going to bust down the door. And so he's yelling at the bus driver, waving an axe. And everyone is just stopped staring. I'm stopped staring. I'm thinking like, what is going? What's wait, what's going on? I mean, it happened in such a flash of a moment. And then it was as if uh, the gentleman uh, woke up and came to in his moment of road rage and quickly threw his axe back in the car, jumped in his car and rushed away. It, ha it all happened in a matter of moments. It happened in a matter of seconds. And I remember just standing there just in utter shock of well, wh what just happened? What am I seeing here? It took me a while to even process what I was seeing. Now, when I, when I watched this video of this, uh, this poor woman being just heartlessly killed in the middle of the street, you could see that a lot of people weren't even sure, wait, what, what's going on? Wait, am I, is that really what I'm seeing? And there were a few people that went to try to approach him, to try to stop him, but no one fully did. I'm sure they could have. I'm sure if many people rushed at him, throwing rocks at him, hitting him, running him over with a car and trying to avoid the uh, poor woman on the ground, they could have overwhelmed him, but they didn't. Why, why didn't they? Well, the reason why is because of a very famous story of another unfortunate woman, woman who died in 1964 named Kitty Genovese. Now, I write about this in my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting, and this is a chapter from my book, and I'm just going to read a short portion of it as it's very applicable and really explains what is happening here in this story in Delhi. It goes like this. It was March 13th, 1964 at 2.30 a.m. Kitty Genovese, a 28-year-old bartender, finished her shift at Ev's 11th Hour Bar. She jumped into her red Fiat and drove home. Winston Mosley, married with three kids, sat in his car parked off Hoover Avenue, quote-unquote, looking for a woman to kill. He saw Kitty stop at the traffic light 
and decided to follow her home. When Kitty arrived at her apartment at 3.15 a.m., she walked to her apartment door, and Winston jumped out of his car with a hunting knife. Kitty ran for the door, but Winston grabbed her, stabbing her twice in the back. Kitty screamed, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. Help. Help. A neighbor heard the scream and shouted out the window, Let that girl alone. That was enough to scare Winston off, who jumped in his car and drove away. For 10 minutes, Kitty lay screaming on the ground, nearly unconscious and locked out of her apartment. No one helped her. After 10 minutes, here's where it gets crazy. After 10 minutes, Winston changed his mind and returned to the scene of the crime. He attacked her again. He raped her. He stabbed her 12 more times before fleeing the scene with the $49 Kitty had in her purse. All the while, 38 witnesses watched from their apartment windows. An ambulance arrived at 4.15 a.m., an hour after the attack began. Kitty died on the way to the hospital. According to one report, the attack had lasted 35 minutes. During police investigation, it was found that 38 people in the surrounding apartments had witnessed the attack, but only one had eventually called the police. One couple, who said they assumed someone else had called the police, had moved two chairs next to the window in order to watch the violence. Unbelievable. Most of these individuals assumed someone else had called the police or did not want to get involved. They had a sense it was not their responsibility. Someone else would call the police. Someone else would help. One witness even confessed that they didn't want to get involved, while another admitted he turned up the radio so he wouldn't hear the woman's screams. After all, it wasn't their responsibility. Why? Why would so many people witnessing this horrific crime didn't more than one person call the police? Why didn't someone come to her aid? After many studies, articles, and findings, we now understand the phenomenon we know today as the diffusion of responsibility. The diffusion of responsibility is a psycho-psychological phenomenon whereby a person is less likely to take responsibility for actions or inaction when others are present. Considered a form of attribution, the individual assumes that others either are responsible for taking action or have already done so. Diffusion of responsibility happens because individual group members believe they are not responsible to act, that someone else has already acted, or that somebody will act in the future. This explains what happened in New York City. When a girl, over the, the course of 38 minutes, was stabbed to death with people pulling their chairs to the window to watch the violence, to see what was happening. There was, there was a window of 10 minutes where she laid on the ground where someone could have come out and saved her life, just brought her into the apartment, and that would have been enough. 
It took the ambulance an hour to show up. But it wasn't enough. This is the same thing that happened in Delhi. This, I believe, is the real reason that no one stepped up to help. One, much like me on the streets of Philadelphia late at night, seeing a man pull out a three-foot fire axe and attack a bus. He didn't actually hit the bus, but he, he, he was threatening the bus driver. He was mad. I, I didn't bum rush the guy. I didn't, you know, I didn't even have the time to understand what was going on. I didn't have the situational awareness. Now, these people in the story of Kitty Genovese, they pulled up chairs. They were watching. They had a full 38 minutes to do something about it. So it wasn't just that they were in a state of shock. Whereas in the video with the, the young woman being killed in Delhi, that help happened very quickly, maybe a number of minutes. For sure, there were people who were able to then process what was happening and maybe do something about it. But again, we see that it goes back to this diffusion of responsibility where we think, okay, well, no one else is doing anything. And maybe someone already called the police. Maybe, you know, someone's someone else is going to do anything. I, I, I don't know if I should jump in. I mean, he has a knife. I don't have a knife. What am I going to do? We fail to step up. We fail to take action. We fail to press into these horrible challenges. So I don't, I don't blame the fact that someone thought, well, it's an internal matter or, well, it's, you know, that's a cultural thing. Oh, well, they're just so horrible over there. Well, they're, they're just a backward society. Well, New York is a, New York is a backward society. The UK, backward society. We're all in a backward society, if you want to put it that way. But it's this diffusion of responsibility of when we are in a group and we look around and we say, ah, so-and-so is going to do it. Oh, that person over there, they're, they're probably going to take responsibility. He looks like a leader. She looks like a leader. She looks like she's capable. Maybe she'll step up and resolve this issue. But the reality is, the truth is, people don't stand up. People don't offer themselves. People are sitting back waiting for a leader to stand up and take action, to organize. Looking for a leader to step forward and say, hey, let's bum rush this guy. Hey, we need to stop this. A person that is living and going through life with enough situational awareness to recognize what's happening on, what's happening around them, and to take action on that immediately. It takes people to stand others up and people who are stood up. And that takes leadership. That takes organizational leadership. That takes initiative. And that takes taking responsibility for the world around you. Taking responsibility for your life, for your marriage, for your family, your children, for your workplace, for your community. Taking responsibility and pressing forward into the uncomfortable if you are getting value out of this show, if you're learning something from this episode, there's a couple ways I want to encourage you to actually learn more from this. And the first way is talk to your friends about this. Talk to your friends. Listen to this again. Talk to your friends about it and have a conversation and ask, how can we be more situationally aware? How can we stand up? How can we not be the prey to the diffusion of responsibility when something's happening around us, if we're ever in a situation. I tell a story uh, previously on this podcast 
about a, a divine appointment. And I was driving home after the the birth, you know, our the birth of our, our third son. He was two days old. He's in the back of our car. We're getting into the car to leave the hospital to drive home. And it's raining out. As we're driving, we we witnessed an accident just had just happened. We didn't see the accident. And there was a crowd of people around this man lying on the ground. I pull the car over. I get out and I hold this man as I die. There, people are trying to move him. People are trying to give him water. He's trying to get up. I'm like, no, just, just leave him there. Let's wait for the ambulance to come. Like hold his neck still. He dies in my arms. Moments later, the EMT shows up does CPR, and he resuscitates in front of me. He was dead for maybe 45 seconds or a minute. And at times I I think to myself, okay, why, why didn't the moment that he passed, why didn't I take responsibility? Why didn't I step up? Why did I look around to see if the ambulance was here? And luckily, praise God, the the, the ambulance was pulling right up. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait for the expert to do it. And so at, at times I think, okay, maybe I didn't do enough. But at times I also realize, well, maybe me getting out of the car stopped this man from being moved. Maybe me getting out of the car and, and holding his hand as he passed away once from a, a, a heart attack as it appeared, you know, was, was something that actually saved his life. But that took me stepping out and taking responsibility in that moment, having the situational awareness and being willing to inconvenience myself when I have a two-day-old baby and a wife that just gave birth in the car wanting to go home. And so I want to challenge you to begin to have this conversation with your friends, to, to engage your community, to say, how can we become more situationally aware? How can we take responsibilities for our lives? It starts with us. It starts at home. A second way, if you're getting value out of the show, you can sign up for an app called Breeze. It's a podcast app. And you, through listening to the show on this app, you can find it the link in the show notes or uh, Googling it or going to DuckDuckGo and searching for it, Breeze Podcast. As you listen, you can stream micropayments, tiny little sats, little digital currencies, and tip as you listen. And it's a great way to engage with the show. It's a great way to give feedback to me that you're enjoying something, that you're listening to something, that something's making you think. And that I find that where your heart, where your money is, there your heart is also. Where I put my money, where I put my dollar bills, when I buy a book that's expensive, or I sign up for something that's expensive, then I am then invested in it. And that in turn allows it to manip- not it allows it to mold my heart in a way that I gain something out of it. And so that's another way that you can, if you're getting value out of this, to grow in this value, to let it really sink in, is by giving to the show, by donating to the show, because we are an independent show and your Your donations make all the difference. Now, don't go away. We will be right back with a very important Weaver and Loom segment that brings this all home. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can 
own our future and weave our destinies. That picture of the weaver and loom, that picture of fate. Well, there's a relationship that we have with fate. Yes, our destiny might be written in the stars, but we are the ones that have to wake up every day, get out of bed and choose. You and I have to choose not to squander our destiny. So today's quote is by Alexander Solzhenitsyn from the Gulag Arpagalico, where he writes concerning evil and wicked people, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Alexander Solzhenitsyn was swept up in, in the, the USSR, put in gulags and, and, and wrote the gulag Archangelico, and really commenting on the heart of mankind. And I think this quote really drives home what we have been talking about, that the, the line between good and evil, it's in your heart and it's in my heart. That in the story of, of Sally, who is married to her husband, for 31 years and then one day snapped and killed him, one of her friends said she wouldn't hurt a fly. There's, she was the kindest, sweetest person. And one day, it, she just snapped. Now he, from the sounds of it, Richard was probably manipulative and controlling and having an extramarital affair and probably drove her to the brink. But you and I, could also be driven to the brink by one thing or another. So that puts the fear of God in me, puts the fear of God in me to realize that I, I am no different. I am no different from the people who pulled up their chairs and watched Kitty be murdered for 38 minutes. I'm no different from those people. And if I say to myself, well, no, I'm basically good. I'm a good person. I trust my heart. I'm, I'm a good person. Mankind's basically good. If I'm one of those people who say that, then I am deceiving myself. I'm no different than the dozen of dozen people this past week in India that watched this young lady be stabbed dozens, 20 plus times in the middle of traffic. I'm no different. Would, can I honestly say that I would have had the courage to rush this man? Can I honestly say? I hope I would. I'd like to think I would. But talking about this, thinking through this situation, that hopefully might make me prepared to make that hard decision. And if I can make that decision now in my heart, if I can decide now in my heart Actually, I would risk my life for another human being in that situation. Then I think I might, I think I might, I hope I might be someone who stands up if that day ever comes knocking on my door. I pray that it never does, but you never know. Today could be your day. Today could be my day where we have an opportunity to help someone else at the risk of our own peril. 
But if we are not prepared beforehand, then we won't take action. And if we think that we are the good people and it's that group of people out there, those are the evil ones. If only can we can round them up and stick them somewhere, then we'll be better. And again, we've deceived ourselves. We deceived ourselves. So that's all. Thanks for being here with me on the show today. And uh, please go out this week. Think about, think about your purpose, your purpose to serve other people. Because it's in the serving of other people that we really do find our purpose. Pursue truth, discern the truth, and own your future.